Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 173, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And welcome to this week's podcast. Now, we do have to say that because I was checking out the stats last week. We've added on thousands of new listeners in the last few weeks. It's been awesome. Yeah, probably. I mean, we were in Retro Gamer magazine in the last couple of weeks, um, in the current issue, actually, if you're going to your local news agent. Um, obviously, Play Expo, all these events that we're doing all over the place as well. So it's always amazing to see new people coming on board and, you know, getting tweets of people going, just discovered your show and I've actually uh, binged listen 150 of them over the weekend. That's pretty God, cool. God, yeah, you've got three <laughs> years of stuff to keep up with now. <laughs> but it's crazy. I was meeting people at Play Expo like last weekend who were saying to me, you know, like, yeah, I've, I've literally only discovered the show a month ago, but yeah, I'm caught up to date now. Yeah, and I'm like, that's awesome. You must be sick to death of our voice by now, surely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you are going to any events, maybe this weekend you're off to Pixel Heaven, maybe listening on the plane. I'll be there as well. I'm off to Poland this weekend. Yep, I'm off to Swag as well. Yeah, Southwest Amiga Group, and then we're off to uh, Norway next month too. Uh, for our first appearance out in Norway, actually, with um, DJ Slopes is going to be out there as well. Yeah, my first time in uh, Scandinavia. I hear it's absolutely beautiful as well. It is a lovely place out there. Yeah, if you want to come out and check us out at any of these events, I'll put links in our show notes at theretrohour.com to where you can buy tickets. So uh, if you are in Poland or maybe you're listening in Norway and you want to come out and say hello, uh, definitely try and make it along to these events and there's more to come throughout the summer as well. Now this week, we've got a really cool guest on this podcast every week. I mean, not only do we keep you up to date on what's happening in the world of retro gaming and technology, but also we bring you a really interesting guest. Now, those who have been listening to the show for a while will know that I've got, you know, probably two big loves in, in the world of gaming. Adventure games, big into them. We did actually a whole month of that adventure games last yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tanks, adventures, point and clicks. You're really, you're really into that kind of adventure fantasy stuff. Well, I love it. Yeah, LucasArts kind of stuff. That was yeah. amazing. And <laughs> also the system I collect for is... The Atari Jaguar. Yeah, you see, we both collect for strange CD systems, don't we? So you collect for the Jaguar, I collect Amiga CD32. Yeah, I've got the CD add-on for the Jag as well, so I've collected all eight games that were released for that. Um, and actually, because, you know, funnily enough, when we were at Play Expo last weekend, like, we are with our mate, obviously Joe was there, and our mate Alex as well. Alex is getting stuff for his Super Nintendo, Joe's getting a few Mega Drive things. I'm looking around, I'm like, hang on, that looks like a an erotica game for the Philips CDI. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I only buy really bad games these yeah. days because I've got all the good ones that I want anyway. Well, why are we on about the Jaguar? Well, I mean, the Jaguar, it's, it's an interesting system. And there were some good titles released on the Jag as well. And the one that really everyone says was the big system seller back in the day, and a lot of people write it's the best game on the Jaguar, was a first-person shooter called Alien vs. Predator. Now, today on the show... We're going to be joined by James Purple Hampton. Now, he's a really interesting guy. Not only um, did he kind of do his own kind of live-action game based on D&D when he was really young, which we'll talk about in just a bit, but also then he got into the industry. He worked at Lucasfilm Games, testing games like Monkey Island 1 and 2. And, awesome. <laughs> which, you know, some of the, probably the biggest adventure games ever made. And we'll find out a bit about what the process was like in, you know, the development of those games and working there at the time and kind of what changed that development as well, which I find really interesting. And then after that, he worked for Atari, um, you know, with the Tremils when the Jaguar was just coming out the door. And 
he actually worked on Alien vs. Predator, the game that most people do regard as the best title on the system. So we'll talk a bit about not only developing that game, but the Jag in general as well. And yeah, stuff like Doom for the Jag was yeah. absolutely awesome port. And, you know, just like how the Jag was used, developed, how the actual budgeting was done by the Tremils and how they looked after certain projects and made sure certain projects succeeded. And what went wrong, yeah. <laughs> of course, as well. So it's a really interesting chat this week. James Purplehampton is going to be our guest on the Retro Hour podcast. He'll be on in around 15 minutes from now. And we've got some cool news stories to cover this week as well, including, get your credit card ready, the most expensive retro games console we've ever seen. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. And a game called Hunter from back in the day. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Loved Hunter, loved Hunter. That was the kind of my first free roam. Yeah, back on the Amiga, wasn't it? I think yeah, I came yeah. out on the SD, and SD as well, yeah. So we're going to talk about a new version of that as well in just a bit. Now, before we get into our new stories this week, at the start of every show, we give a huge thank you to the people who enable us to come in here and bring you the Retro Hour podcast week in, week out. We're into, like, what, our fourth year of doing this show now, so we've been doing this a long time, and we couldn't get this far without your support. Now, if you'd like to help out the show... Everything we earn from it, every penny, every cent, every dollar, every euro goes back into the running of the podcast and you will earn a place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like this week, we want to say a big thank you to... Derek Murray. Christian Trangius, Patrick McGinty and Darren Coles who all made donations into the running of the show and if you'd like to do the same we accept it on PayPal any amount through our website at theretrohour.com and also while we're talking about great supporters of the podcast our amazing friends at The Economist now they've been supporting the podcast now for months and honestly we really appreciate their support and we're big fans of The Economist too I mean they've been going over 170 years which is you know in this world of like you know false news and misleading headlines on social media getting real trustworthy news is more important than ever. And they cover so much as well. I mean, obviously, you've got the economy and finance in there too, but also politics, business, science, technology, and of course, going in with the show, gaming as well. Are you checking out this article about Apple's change in direction? Yeah, so Apple, they've, they've kind of made their iPhones too good. Like yeah, the, the iPhone 7 and 8 and 6, people aren't upgrading from them. So they're slowing their phone sales. They've sold all the phones to people that they can sell and they haven't really got a gimmick to go through there. So they're aiming for new areas, which are like game streaming, which we're going to hear a lot about from everybody. And we've actually got a point, uh, a new st- item that we're going to talk about that. News, but also a credit card. So they want to kind of get in that middleman area, just like... a. Elon Musk did with uh, PayPal, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, they've got Apple Pay and stuff like that already, but I think you're right there. It's um, the fact, you know, I, I've got a new iPhone. It's like, yeah, the camera's a bit better and the you know, screen's a bit brighter, but what else can they do? It's yeah. all about the content now, yeah. and I think that's what they're going to be interested in, having these content services. But actually, I think it's going to lead to more of a fragmented market, and there's not going to be a central place where you can either find your game or find your movie like they're not all going to be on apple they're not all going to be on Netflix. so it's going to be spread all over the shop isn't it and this article kind of talks about that as well and also where the fact that is it going to get the stage where we need like to spend about 50 quid a month signing up to all, all these, these different, different services yeah, 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 just yeah. to get the shows that we want so that's the kind of stuff they cover in the economist some really interesting eye-opening articles and we would like to invite you to get your own free copy of the economist through your door now if you live in the uk all you've got to do is grab your phone right now for your free print copy of the economist 
podcast, text the word retro and send it to 78070. We've got this exclusive offer just for you, listeners of the Retro Hour podcast. We'd love you to check it out. You'll be really helping out the show as well. Text retro and send it to 78070 and get your own copy of The Economist, The Smart Guide to the Forces Changing Your World. You know, my dad actually did this. He, yeah. he he wrote, got his copy of The Economist, subscribed, and when he subscribed, they also sent him a power bank. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, which is really Result cool. must have known that's your dad. Like, oh, that's Ravi's dad. We'll, we'll yeah, help you yeah, there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> now, let's get into this week's news stories then. Now, we've been covering kind of these tools to make your own retro games over the last couple of weeks. We had uh, Jonathan Cordwell's amazing package. Yeah, multi-arcade designer. We had the NES maker package that let you make games for the Nintendo Entertainment System. But maybe the NES is a bit too tied down for you. Maybe like you're gaming on the road. What about making games for the original Game Boy? Yes, that would be awesome. And this is uh, called Game Boy Studio. Now, it's for building actual real Game Boy yeah. ROMs, but you can also display them on stuff like your iPhone. Yeah, this and, looks insane. Yeah, play them and export them to all different types of stuff. And also, you could build HTML5 versions, which is absolutely insane. So you could kind of have it integrated with a website, or you could have it on running on anything that would run a HTML5 browser. Which is like any anything with a web browser these days. Yeah, isn't it? pretty yeah. much. If so, you're not using old Internet Explorer, but yeah. Yeah, I might not work on my Amiga 1200, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> but that is awesome. I mean, the fact that these tools are coming out now, because I mean, back then, if you want to make a Game Boy game back in the day, you'd need a dev kit. It cost a hell of a lot of money to make games for these systems. And you can even flash this. So what, what you can do is you can get one of these original, like, kind of flash carts, yeah. uh, usually cheap from China, and then you just flash the ROM image onto that and then just put it into your Game Boy, bang, go, straight yeah. away. So this code can actually run on your original Game Boy from 1989 as well. And looking at it, I mean, it, again, it's like these other things we've kind of covered in the last couple of weeks. The majority of it seems to be quite point-and-click driven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, uh, you know, I think this is really good for anybody learning to code because if you can do the point and click driven stuff and then look further into the code and go oh what i've done is actually doing that then you that's the start of a process that's the start of actually creating something yeah and how programs are structured and that kind of thing too yeah so you're right you're looking at it and you're like, you, you do your point and click stuff but also the code kind of generates into the side of the screen so um yeah you know it looks really really cool and if you've ever had a dream of making your own game boy game and I love the fact, you know, I could make a game and just email it to you, check this out on this website, I'll put it up there, you know. It's, yeah, that's and, cool. and, and I guess people can innovate as well, you know. You've got total freedom with something like this. Yeah, and if you're running it online too, I mean, you, you, can, you can make it, you know, multiplayer games that you can play through. Yeah, it's great HTML5 with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've got something crazy. Pokemon Red for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to read more about that, of course, we've put all of our stories that we talk about every week in our show notes at theretrohour.com. We save you the hassle of Googling. We put it all there for you. And you might be interested in looking at this if you've got a, a few quid floating around. If you're a bit fancy like Ravi. $2,799. That is how much this emulator will cost you. for this. Um, they're calling it the fanciest retro game console around. It's made by this company who we've covered before. Yeah. Uh, artists and craftsmen love Holton. Yep. And I don't know how this guy makes any money. Maybe he <laughs> makes individual ones and then sells them or something, but... This is really weird, actually. So what they have is they have um, a 19-inch 4x3 monitor that's actually LCD. Yeah, it's LCD, but they've kind of warped it to they've look warped like it. it. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how they've done that. Bent, bent the screen to look like an old CRT monitor. Yeah. I've never actually seen that before, have you? No, and I, 
I don't even know how you do that. Unless, yeah, yeah. unless you custom made a front panel or, or heated it up and bent it or something. I don't know. It must be really weird to look at it, though. But uh, see what it looks like. Well, inside there's a, there's a Raspberry Pi in there. And obviously you can emulate as much as you want on that thing. And they cost like, what, 25 quid to buy yeah. a Raspberry Pi? There's a Bluetooth controller to attach your um, uh, remotes as well and your game controllers. That's that's fine. That's yeah. cheap. Well, that, that's already on board on the Raspberry Pi yeah. now anyway. So I think literally what this is, it's a nice-looking fancy case. I mean, looking at the build quality, it's it's all handcrafted wood by the looks of it, you know. It yeah. looks like they made this. It reminds me of, you know, you watch like the... Um, the Simpsons, the TV they have in the corner of their living room, that kind of old-style American big boxy CRT with the tuning knobs and all that on. I could see this for like a really trendy company that's just trying to do up their offices or something. Yeah. Th- those are the kind of guys that would buy this. A Raspberry Pi and a flat screen. <laughs> you're probably talking about 100 quid's worth of technology in there, if that, aren't you, really? Yeah, but you could even go down to the charity shop and just stick a Raspberry Pi in a old TV. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and all the comments on this article are saying that, you know, this guy here is called a quarter burn. He goes, $2,800 and all you get is a $30 computer with a warp screen from the shell of a 1960s TV, which if you want to boil it down to its essence, you're right. But again, we've talked about this company before and these are really art installations, aren't they? They're made for, like yeah. you said, trendy bars or, uh, you know, maybe galleries or something People like that. People with more sense than money, I'm yeah. afraid. <laughs> Which is uh, not us. I've got no sense but no money as well. So <laughs> it's good to drool over this kind of thing and check oh, it out, yeah, I think, though, isn't it? Now let's get into this story that I've been seeing everywhere, but a bit of a different angle on this. You know, Microsoft have recently released their new Xbox One without a Blu-ray drive on there. Yes, so there's an article here in Quartz which is talking about... Um, how new video games console will kill the future of retro gaming culture. Yeah. And it's it's pretty wrong, I think. But uh, what they're saying is they're saying, oh, you know, I had a problem finding this Tetris game. The cartridge burnt out, so I had to go to eBay and then eventually I had to buy it from an antique store. And they're just going to get rarer and rarer having physical copies of games, especially with stuff like the Xbox One coming out. But then... We've talked about a great service called Antstream yeah. that's coming up, and uh, they've actually got a Kickstarter at the moment and a few stretch goals. So if you check them out, they're wanting to do a streaming service for retro games with added options like league tables, you know, being able to add your friends, do multiplayer on some games that previously wouldn't have had it, you know. Yeah, they're kind of like, they call themselves the Netflix of video games, aren't they, really, for retro games. We, I actually met them at Play Expo, you know, re- really cool company. Um, but yeah, I, I think, because I've been seeing this everywhere, the angle that most of the media I've been seeing have been talking about is game collecting. You know, now you get this discless Xbox One, mm. you're not going to have a shelf of games on there. And for me, I mean, the, the biggest disadvantage of not having discs is that, you can't trade him in, I guess, if you, if you want to do that kind of thing. I think the biggest detriment in the future that this is going to be for is game shops. Because, you know, yeah. especially yeah. stuff like CEX and Game and, you know, all, all these stores that rely a large percent of their income. the second-hand market. Yeah, the second-hand market. It's yeah. going to kill that off. But, as we know, I mean, there's already been cases of services that have closed down in the last decade or so. I mean, one example I w- I've got on, on my hard disk on my Xbox 360, I've got Outrun Coast to Coast, yeah. which is the Outrun 2 version, nicely upgraded for the 360. The loss of Ferrari license, so it got pulled after a year. But it's already happening as well. So stuff like floppy disks, those old, really 5.25-inch floppies. Those the really ones. floppy ones. Yeah, <laughs> they're already going. Um, Double densities are already going and stuff. And, you know, I collect CD32 games, and I'm well aware that 
all my CD32 games are probably going to go with in the next 10 years. Yeah. The CDs won't be readable, but I don't care. I want them box and <laughs> manual, even if it's got a copied CD in there. It's, it's, it's weird. But um, I think stuff like cartridges, SNES stuff, NES stuff, that's going to last for a long time, isn't it? Yeah, as long as there's not batteries inside them. <laughs> ah, true, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's the difference. It's, it's either, you're right there, because collectors... Often collectors get sealed games and they probably never open them anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's just get collecting dust on the shelf. That's all it's doing. But what I don't worry about is, though, I don't worry about the fact that we might never be able to play these games again because have we, as we've seen already, I mean, you know, the, the original Wii servers went down recently, but there'll always be services like archive.org and, you know, the pirates, if you want to call them that, the abandoned no, where people totally, that they'll always find away. The one thing that happened when the Amiga scene died yeah. was that, Everybody thought all this software was lost. But thanks to the piracy groups and the crackers, there was actually these huge archives. I don't think you can download a piece of old Amiga software now without having a crack on the front of it, you know, because those are the remaining kind of copies. So I actually think they're helping preserve quite a lot of stuff. I've actually seen commercial releases of old games again that have actually admitted, yeah, we use a pirated version because we forgot how to get around our old copy section. So there you go. In in the end, that has been the only way. That's always going to continue, despite efforts like, you know, from companies like Nintendo to wipe it off the face of the earth. It's like, I think there'll always be a way if you know where to look. And, And also, like, games companies... They've been sold through so many different groups, different assets, and you know they've all been transferred and everything. I think it's 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 going to be hard to erase all the games out of existence because one person hasn't purchased them all. Yeah, you know, if there was one big owner that could say right, no, but there's so many different owners, so many companies. It's actually quite a nightmare to find out who owns a game. <laughs> and if you ever can't who find who owns the rights, and if you ever can't find a game, I mean, just. Drop Ravi a little DM, he'll invite to his private <laughs> FTP server. Yep. <laughs> He's going to get loads of them now. I'm joking. I joke, of course. Now, I have we... got an FTP. <laughs> that knock on the door? <laughs> Nintendo's lawyers? Not Nintendo game. No, no Nintendo ROMs at all on there. Oh, no. Now, before we get into our guest, uh, James Purple Hampton, this week, let's talk a bit about Hunter. Now, this was a game that came out by Activision, didn't it, back on the ST? And the Amiga back in was it 1991? I believe that game came out originally. Yeah, and it was it was quite cool because it was in this like polygon style, but you could also drive different vehicles. I remember that. I I didn't really ever know what I was doing on this game. I was just going around driving different vehicles, uh, crashing boats, and uh, just being at awe with exploring the land. But you'd never seen anything like it before. No, yeah. no, it was really, really beautiful. Actually, I'd say the one thing that it reminded me of was Castle Master and uh, 3D Construction Kit. Yeah. Because if you ever used 3D Construction Kit, I used to try and build the local market square in 3D Construction Kit, but never had enough memory. Because <laughs> 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 it was far too big. But it has that look, but it's colour... And yeah. it, it's just got a really nice isometric style, actually. Well, just, those are like very early 90s shady polygons, isn't it, before texture mm. mapping came along. And, I mean, you know, gameplay-wise, today it, it kind of reminds me of something like a GTA V, isn't it? It's walk around, get in vehicles, it's that yeah, third-person yeah. perspective. Very cutting-edge for its time. But now it turns out there's actually been a, a modern conversion of this game uh, for GZ Doom, which is... So they put this on the Doom engine. Yeah. Which and is it, nuts. And 
it looks like it, it it looks a lot smoother obviously and it's it's kind of running well um the vehicles are a bit shaky yeah <laughs> but um yeah it's interesting that they're actually porting it i'd i'd love to see a, a version of hunter for modern machines yeah. as well you know maybe they can clean this up a bit and get it working even better well this is a thread on eab the english amiga board that i'll link up to in our show notes as well it's about seven pages long at the moment but very interesting read and they're definitely worth checking out for your fan of the original game Right then, let's get into this week's special guest, James Purplehampton, talking about those days testing out games like Monkey Island at Lucasfilm and then into the Jaguar period at Atari. Really interesting guest, and we will have more news for you next Friday. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. We're really excited to get stories about massive companies like Lucasfilm Games and Atari as well. Welcome to the show, James Purplehampton. Hello, how's it going? Very good, thank you. Now, uh, now before we get into stories of these amazing companies that you've worked at, just kind of going back to you know your, your origins and kind of your geek credentials. Um, how did you first get into like computers and games? Where did it all start for you? I guess it all started when I was in probably junior high school. Uh, I had one of my best friends, uh, Kevin, had an Apple II at his house and sort of um, introduced me to the idea of, you know, what um, computer games could be. So we played a lot of Wizardry, the text adventures, Swashbuckler, you know, a lot of things on the monochrome sc- screen. And then periodically would sneak off to the arcade and uh, play some, you know, coin-op stuff to sort of keep ourselves uh, busy after school, you know. Would you uh, kind of get lost in those fantasy text adventure games as well? Yeah, absolutely. We were big fans of the Infocom, um, you know, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with the original box and the sort of microscopic space fleet in a bag type of thing. You know? That game was brutal as well, wasn't it? <laughs> it was pretty hard. I mean, in fact, you know, a lot of people got stuck at the babblefish step just because it was so complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite, un- were, quite unfair yeah. as well, I remember. You, you, like, you some random events. Are just tri- I mean, it's quite faithful to the story, but it was, yeah, it was just the way it worked. You know, you die in the most unexpected ways. Right, exactly. We, we sort of made it as a sort of um, me and um, would have a couple friends over and we all sort of like did it together shouting out answers and trying things out but you know made it sort of a kind of a shared experience for us all it was really funny so which were your kind of favorite titles at the arcade and what did you have to beat like the first title that pulled me in was really uh, Star Castle I don't know if you're familiar it's one of the Vextrex wireframe games it's simple but it did everything in the same sense like um you know, three concentric rings with this sort of center castle area that you're trying to like sort of break through and it would periodically sort of launch out, you know, um, fire against you. And it had that kind of cool attract mode where, you know, simple things like the deep bass sound of the blast sort of like would echo through the, you know, the arcade and you'd sort of wander over. It's like, oh, what's that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that sort of got me going. Um, but then uh, was immediately drawn to when the, the Star Wars arcade game came out the wireframe going through the trenches. It was just exactly what you'd imagined from the movie and it's really sort of puts you there and saw the potential for like, wow, arcade games can really be everything when you, <laughs> if you put your minds to it. And those vector graphics, I mean, that even now I think there's still something about them that look quite, you know, just, just different, don't they, to everything else? Well, really they stand out and at the time they really were the, um, it had the best sort of tactile feel because they're vector graphics. They, um, you know, they were really lightning fast and everything felt solid if you, if that makes sense, even there were wireframe. <laughs> um, I don't know if you remember the original Battle Zone with the twin sort of sticks yeah. you know, that you sort of look through the, the the visor, and that just sort of completed that sort of kind of thing. Sort of completed the experience. It really sort of sort of set you into it and kind of set the bar for, you know, 
where to go and why the arcades for such a long time held so for so many um you know what you could get at home at the time wasn't really didn't quite match up to what you were seeing in the arcades at the time <laughs> i mean speaking of home systems did you get a console or a computer yourself then around this time i had a uh, a borrowed um atari 800 that uh i was you, he and i my friend we were um knew the p- people at the local computer game shop and every so often they would uh you know, give me a loaner. I was sort of saving up to get the Atari 100, but it, it did give me, you know, they did let us take it home a few times and we got to break out, you know, Star Raiders, the, um, you know, even the basics of original Space Invaders, uh, all that was something we got to explore and really um, dig into the things like with the, on, the, on the Apple, on the Apple II. And they were good machines as well, the, the 400 and the 800, the Ataris, weren't they? Very capable. Well, yeah, and they also worked with um, traditional game-type controllers and, again, sort of bringing you an experience into your house that was unparalleled at the time. You know, um, those uh, original Atari with the five-and-a-quarter-inch floppies and, <laughs> um, you know, sort of you know, made it all sort of fit together. Well, I heard you even um, made a live-action game based on D&D. Is that right? <laughs> well, right. So I've been playing games all my life. Um, we had a D&D group where we were doing, uh, you know, following their traditional modules and things. But we also, uh, part of our D&D sessions, we'd watch some horror movies at the time. And one week, you know, we had really gotten into um, Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. So me and my friend Sean, we um, sort of worked out a um, – when the group came over one day, we had created like a – sort of a fake um, emergency broadcast message that said zombies are playing here. And we took the session and turned it into a live playing, you know, uh, zombies are attacking role-playing game (laughs) where we followed people around the house. It's like, well, they're coming through the window. What do you do? And they're like, well, we're going to barricade it with a table. It's like, you know, there's a table in the room. We'd roll the dice to sort of see um, what the encounter, you know, did they hit or miss that type of thing and sort of basically followed it around. It was kind of an extension of... Um, trying to mix it up with the D&D rule base to kind of give us as a guide, but then adding our own elements to, so we can make it into a zombie hunting game. So That's, That sounds loads of fun, actually. <laughs> yeah, it was actually, you know, it's like it was one of those things where, oh, well, we shoot them. It's like, well, do you have a gun? Do you see a gun? No? Well, what do you see instead? <laughs> we sort of left like sort of fake, you know, some props around that you could use as sort of quote-unquote weapons, but they had to go actually physically go into the room and sort of find where we had put them. And it really added like a, it was, you know, sort of like a haunted fun house, but in role-playing form, <laughs> you know, with dice sort of to, to determine the outcome. So it was it was a pretty um, fun experiment. And I guess us. I guess they're always kind of set in moors as well, because that's where you can go and get all the weapons and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I mean, what we tried to do is like, you know, combine like a little bit of, you know, reality. And we wanted people to think like, well, what would you do in this actual situation? Like, you know, this house has a lot of windows and things. Maybe you should go back to the basement where it's perhaps more protected. And what, but the basement only has one door in and out. Maybe that isn't such a great idea, right? <laughs> like, well, how did you get into the industry professionally? You know, by magic and miracle, I would say. <laughs> um, I had been going to school. Uh, my house burned down. I lost everything I owned. And I had a, uh, a dream to sort of head west. And so I you know, realized I could pack, fit all my belongings in a bag. And so um, I had packed my things and headed west. And when I landed in the Bay Area, um, I at one point found a and it was a news, blind newspaper ad saying, do you have com- experience playing computer games? We want to talk to you. I was, <laughs> it was, I think, the one time that um, Lucas, uh, 
Lucasfilm Games had decided to advertise in the paper for testing positions, and I remember getting up. I didn't actually know it was Lucasfilm until the actual day of the interview where I'm sitting in the lobby going, what's with all the Star Wars posters, right? Which <laughs> <laughs> was quite a big surprise. <laughs> and obviously there was such a huge company, you know, for adventure games in, in the late 80s and early 90s. I mean, when you first got there then, I mean, working at this company, what kind of stuff were you doing at first then? I mean, I got thrown into the deep end right away. So it was the final beta test period for um, the original Monkey Island. And so right away I started on, I started on a Friday, but I immediately came in for weekend testing where most of the people in the company also kind of gave up at least a Saturday on their weekend to make that big final push for, um, on the beta versions so that, you know, getting, making sure everything's bug free before it finally goes to manufacturing. And it really gave me a firsthand look of both the, um, you know, just the drive and the dedication that everyone in the, the company had to kind of get it done. And at the same time, just what was involved with, you know, the actual, um, you know, making builds, fixing bugs, testing them again, you know, and then go, you know, sometimes you, you have to learn the hard way that even though people know that you're there to do the job, they're sometimes not thrilled to see the tester show up with a crash bug at their door, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I imagine testing an adventure game, it must be quite time consuming because you're, I guess you have to go through every different option, you know, all, all the different answers you can have for every question and everything. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, um, as I said, I came in on the tail end of Monkey Island 1, but by Monkey Island 2, I was the lead tester and we developed a pretty hefty tome that we had to break out amongst a dozen testers that basically did exactly that. We test every object with every verb with in every room to sort of guarantee that the odd off um, you know, crash bug doesn't sort of happen. And I think that's the part that really gave me the idea that like, you know, yes, testing video games sounds like you're playing games all day, which is pretty awesome. And at the same time, there's a certain level of it's work because you sometimes have to test the same section over and over and over again until they finally fix the problems that are right. And you sort of have to kind of, you know, persevere. <laughs> Even if you've seen that section a dozen times in a day, you've got to be ready for that next time when it's finally correct. Yeah, I, I had a friend who did um, some playtesting for Sega, and at the time, you know, everyone was, oh, it's the coolest job in the world. I think it lasted about a month, and he said, oh, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> it's pretty intense work. It really is. And you have to kind of have that spirit of, I don't mind playing this game for the 500th time. And each time you have to kind of challenge yourself not to kind of follow your own habits, break, you know, each time you have to sort of, we always said, break a rule, right? Do something you're not supposed to, you know, because in the end, that's what you, the actual consumers and people who, you know, who play it, you can't play your game enough before it's finally released was the lesson I learned. Well, you must have played kind of multiple builds and different versions of Monkey Islands. Um, were there any changes that happened uh, that didn't end up in the original title? I mean, at that stage of the first Monkey Island, um, the beta was pretty much locked down. So as far as like creative changes or differences, things have been pretty, um, when you're in development, you reach different, there's different stages. Like uh, alpha lets you, there is some room for new assets and new materials to sort of go come and go. But once you reach beta, everything kind of is um, on lockdown and you're primarily just looking for, you know, bug fixes. Um, you know, and at that stage, really it's crash bugs or something that would prevent anything that would prevent you from finishing the game. And one thing I was, was curious about as well, how did you get the nickname Purple? <laughs> well, when I um, had that dream about heading west, it, it was I was driving a purple marbleized car. So before I headed west, I found a car, uh, painted it purple marble, and <laughs> got on the road. And um, at the time when I first 
uh, started, everyone we sh all shared like a single um, Macintosh and FileMaker Pro database, and everyone had like a, a username or a nickname login. And since I had the, the purple car and these purple glasses and hair, they were like, oh, you're a purple. <laughs> nice. Well, so what was it like working at Lucasfilms at that kind of golden era of adventure games? I mean, I, I realized how lucky I was. Um, you know, Lucasfilm games had a, there was a certain kind of like, you know, just enthusiasm that everyone had because they were there. And that type of enthusiasm is, is sort of infectious. You know, people, um, you know, sort of, they, they rally behind because they realize what they're working on, you know, they truly love. And you can't really polish it enough before it kind of gets out the door. So again, even that first weekend I was working there, what struck me was, wow, these people are, they mean it. <laughs> Right? They're here on a Saturday just alongside, you know, the rest of the testing department and going, you know, people, you know, from customer support, people from the art department, everyone sort of stepped up to kind of get involved and, you know, give it, you know, give it their all before it finally gets shipped to manufacturing. And that really, to me, was, you know, inspiring, right? It's great to sort of be around people who really care about what, what they're making. And you can, you know, and that's, I think, how that golden area that's where it comes from, right? You, it comes from lots of people being putting a lot of, you know, personal time and, and their own care and interest in it to um, make it the best it can be. Well, how closely did you work with, you know, legends of Lucasfilm game like Ron Gilbert and David Fox? Did you have much to do with them? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, those guys were, you know, again, they, they were the leaders of the, of the company. Um, you know, David Fox was always, you know, uh, he was always willing to, he's, as I say, he was this sort of inspiring voice of reason, right? <laughs> like, he was very level-headed, but always had these really just forward-thinking ideas about how to do things and really what to watch for. And he really did sort of set the tone for um, being thorough, and but always maintaining that kind of, you know, does it play well? Does it feel right? You know, that's why his game like um, Ball Blazer is such an addictive game if you're playing, especially in the two-player mode. It's like you get really gets that sense for, what's important to the final player, you know, and that's a, an attribute that's really, um, again, uh, so essential when you're trying to get the game right. Um, and Ron, Ron was really, um, he was really open to, he wanted to get people involved. And so in the test department, we, while we were doing Monkey Island 2, um, the, myself and a couple of the other testers, Jim Curran, Mark Cartwright, um, you know, Brett Mugalewski, we all pulled together our ideas and we created what we called the giant debug or design bug, which contained a lot of, we just did our sort of path section by section of, you know, here's a, you know, here's what we see, here's some ideas. Like, so we came and suggested things like the crazy map that would sort of imitate the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, line map, but in sort of a funny way, because it's Monkey Island or, we really wanted to make the um, the card catalog that's in the library room sort of be a true resource. So if you needed virtually any um, answers to some of the harder questions, you could actually go to the library and find them out, right? So he really opened um, opened it up and and wanted that type of feedback and at the right time, of course, right? <laughs> like again, when something's in alpha, there's a sort of a wide runway to sort of make changes and and do things. And but once it gets locked down, we you know, sort of switch back to bug testing mode and to get it right to the very finish. When you were testing Monkey Islands, kind of, did you realize how good this game was going to be with the cinematics and the soundtrack and, you know, the whole kind of package? I mean, again, that was for me coming from the text adventure world. It was amazing, really. <laughs> it was to see that level of, um, 
of you know just to make such a complete world and while it was there it was also um the time when they the first cd-rom were being introduced uh the first version of um was an fm towns version of loom mm. i don't know if you remember loom yeah great <laughs> Um, but it, it was also one of the first ones that had voice actors and voice talent. So, as we used to call them, talkies, you know, like as an old from silent, reminiscent of the era of silent movies into sound-based movies, right? Like it was the first time that we actually had that kind of level of dialogue on, on into the game, and it really, um, it did, you know, but just when you thought it couldn't be better, it's better, right? <laughs> <laughs> what a new dimension it added. I mean, speaking of Monkey Island too, I remember, you know, that was kind of just before CD-ROMs, you know, became real, like, in, in the mainstream. But that was a massive game. I think I had it on the Commodore Amiga, and I think it was something like 12 or 15 floppy disks. It was like... Oh, my God, I, you're I, right. I yes. didn't have a hard disk either. <laughs> I had to swap them all the time. It was huge. Yeah, I mean, again, that sort of shows you that sort of era and transition, right? The CD-ROM was hadn't even hit the American shores yet. You know, this is mm. pre... Um, of that time and from a testing perspective let me tell you you know the the size of the game like every time you make a new build what does that mean you need like another 12 discs <laughs> you have to re-burn and try it out again and then you think about you have to um, make those sets for at least you know six to a dozen people who are then going to sit there and take it and reinstall it over so yeah we all got very comfortable with the eject button with that one you know <laughs> disc swappers wrist i think was the syndrome wasn't it yes exactly <laughs> we used to stack them right by the door so it's like you can tell people who are really good at, you know <laughs> they were really fast they're like they could almost do it um you know i said blindfolded but <laughs> well what was, did you was... well what did you think of monkey allen 2 then as a game Oh, I, I, I love Monkey Allen too. Mm. I mean, it's like, um, from that, from my perspective, it was something I was able to be part of from the start to the finish line. And as the lead tester, you know, again, we sort of introduced a lot of, um, sort of thorough tracking so that we could, you know, truly have a checklist that we've done every absolute, every interaction possible as we went through. And it was like, as I said, three binders large, right. <laughs> that we had to break up into, um, you know, amongst the department. So, I was a lead tester. We, we had four core testers that were always assigned to this title, but during the larger period, um, we would, didn't recruit from the rest of the testing pool, other people who had been working on like Indie Action or one of the Indiana, um, the Indiana Jones Adventure game or the Swaddle or the Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe, the Flight Sim group. You know, everyone sort of took turns sort of, you know, testing each other's games, even if they weren't officially assigned to that because you can't ever get enough fresh eyes on something. You know, each person um, who's new to it will likely see something that, you know, people who've played the game a hundred times that week might miss. And that's, again, something I've learned and sort of kept with me throughout my career is that you can't, you know, always keep a couple of people who've never seen the title in, you know, around so that you can first present it to them and see if they get stuck on the most basic stuff like getting started or in the installation process or the copy protection. Did the um, designers or the devs ever kind of disagree with any of the views of the um, testers? Uh, of course. <laughs> I mean, as I said, um, you know, when it comes down to the technical bugs, the crash bugs, those are obviously, they must be fixed. But when it comes down to content, there's a fine line between, you know, where the QA group starts and the design team ends, if that makes sense. Um, one of the games the testers had been looking at was one of the Nintendo titles, um, Defenders of Dinatron City. And when it was in a sort of an early alpha stage, um, we as a test team, who again, were all kind of dedicated game players, were 
sort of lost with where the game was going. Um, we felt the gameplay was pretty flat. And during, um, you know, uh, it was, I think it was Doug Norby who would periodically meet or have luncheons with each department. And so when it came time for the testing department, we had all been looking at Defenders of Dinatron City. So we decided, you know, while we're eating our pizza to just sort of discuss what, you know, what we were kind of our concerns about the title. And we all had like, a, again, another 10 page document with a list of ideas about what could be done to sort of improve it. That, that didn't go over so well with the devs for that. And I, I understand that, you know, developers are under a lot of pressure, but they weren't so thrilled when suddenly they're realizing, hey, wait, they need to kind of um, sort of go back and readdress, you know, the, the core gameplay mechanics so that it actually, you know, feels like something that you want to keep playing. I guess that was our concern is that, you know, when it started, it seemed sort of directionless as a player. And we really wanted to kind of step up the action. So that's an encounter where um, one of the developers got pretty angry, <laughs> I have to say, and, um, you know, kind of came down, you know, kind of grumbly to the test department. And, you know, let's just say words were exchanged. It was, a, it was kind of a heated moment. But in the end, they, re you know, they realized that people were, were just trying to make the best game possible. And I, I think that's where everything sort of falls back. It's like they may not agree. They may not feel, they may feel differently, but they ultimately everyone understands that everyone here, even the testers are trying to make this game the best it can. And, you know, let's do, let's focus on the work, not, you know, the, not the drama. Right. Yeah. And I guess it's their baby and they're being like so close to it. And I guess, you know, it must be hard to take criticism for them sometimes, I guess. Well, of course. And I think that's why it's like, we had the policy, you know, our internal QA policy was, you know, don't just write something like this doesn't work. You know, if you have a valid idea of what, how it could be corrected, add that into the bug, you know, put some insight, you know, give you know, there's sometimes it's, it's a, it is sort of a give and take process. And that's something, you know, again, the, the developers of Lucasfilm were really, you know, they were open to that exchange and that really um, helped sort of just as a whole, they recognize that, Hey, you know, we have some input that maybe they're not thinking about and, you know, it does sort of shine a light and, you know, it was nice to kind of see that collaborative spirit sort of carry through to the very end where, you know, at the very for the ending of Monkey Island 2, you know, Ron wasn't quite sure how he wanted to finish it, and so he invited a few of us from the test department to join, you know, him and the scumlets or the other programmers who were, had learned the scum engine, you know, people like you know Tim Schafer and Dave Grossman and Tammy Barowick, um, all kind of gathered into the conference room where we sort of bantered around ideas, and you know, I suggested uh, the what I called the Saint Elsewhere ending, where suddenly you know the main character wakes up and he's sort of seeing the um, the snow globe of of the building, like it's been all a dream, and I think Ron really liked that. So that's why when it, it ended, um, you know, you see Guybrush sort of waking up in his room with his older brother, who's LeChuck. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I remember my jaw dropped when I saw that as a kid. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, and so it really gives you that kind of like dun 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 type of ending, and you know, it was just sort of fun to see that collaborative process with you know the scum team and the QA group sort of coming together and, you know, really jamming on, you know, what could make it, you know, that, that sort of like signature ending that really uh, gives you the big wow. And did that ever get like properly explained as that, that ending? I, I, as a kid, I remember thinking like it was very kind of open to interpretation movie. <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, in general, it's like, you know, they say it's the journey, not the destination. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely true for most adventure games. I, I think in that case, we just wanted, we wanted a surprise. We want, you know, I mean, the fun of playing the adventure games is solving the puzzles and getting there. It's not to say that the ending isn't important, but it's you want to sort of leave on something where, you know, leave, you know, just give something a bit of a, a 
you know, that uh, the unexpected. So that it's like, wow, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? Right? <laughs> like, what were we just seeing? Wait, <laughs> you know. Well, after Lucas Arts, you um, obviously went on to another massive company, um, Atari. How did you go from Lucas Arts to Atari? Then, what was kind of the the, the path there? <laughs> well, I also learned at Lucas Arts something that. Um, became a truth throughout the games industry is that the games industry is sort of a high and low business. Sometimes it's high, you know, things are up and everyone's hiring. Sometimes things are low and they're laying off half the company, which is what, how I got kind of caught up in a company wide, um, layoff at the time because they had sort of overexpanded the company, I think doubled in size in less than like four or six months towards the finish of monkey Island. And I think they had overextended just how many projects were, going to be in the pipeline coming up um and so when i left i actually left and started working with another f- a friend who i'd met at the de- at the department and it was through these friends um i stopped at maxis i, w- I worked at maxis with uh, you know working on the original windows version of SimCity and a train and l life and while i was there um my friend uh brandy wilson who i'd met at lucas arts um her sister worked in the business department at Atari and mentioned that they were looking, you know, starting a new, they were getting a new console ready and they needed um, new producers. So they hand carried my resume over and I interviewed down at Atari and um, I was only at Maxis for six months to jump at the opportunity to become a producer, you know, for, at Atari and for the Lynx and the Jaguar. Well, at what stage did you see the Jaguar in development? Did you see any of the Panther at all? Um, the, I mean, I, I started in 92, so I saw the original early hardware. Um, the, uh, you know, the different cat name code names got a little bit confusing at times as to what was what, which was which. Um, but for me, the Jaguar exposure was like from the, you know, f- when they start far, first started rendering polygons, like I was part of the original um, group where we were demonstrating hardware the hardware to a number of developers that Atari had brought in as part of a early sort of Jaguar developer conference that they held, held on site. And, you know, at the time we just, you know, even we were just sort of trying to demonstrate some of the, you know, the texture mapping, the garage shading, the number of polys we could do. And so it wasn't really game specific work, but it was enough to sort of whet the appetite of the development groups that they had brought in. And that team, um, sort of kept on working. I mean, the Jaguar hardware was being worked on virtually to the very finish line before it was launched, and which is why those first early titles were sort of challenged in the sense that there weren't a, there weren't a complete tool set. Like these days, a console developer, if you're making something for like the PlayStation or Xbox, has a ton of uh, middleware or developer tools that you can sort of count on. And the Atari, on the other hand, was pretty much had nothing <laughs> like at that, or especially at that early stage of things to share or tools to share between the developers. And so each development group was kind of on their own while the hardware is being finished internally, which is both a good thing. That's why you have internal titles to help push the hardware and discover where those, um, where things are sort of the gaps might be. And at the same time, those internal titles still had to get finished and be done on a certain timeline so they could get into manufacturing. And that's a really hard balance to make, get, make to work <laughs> sometimes as the internal team sort of figured out. <laughs> and I guess with Atari having, you know, two consoles, I mean, you did mention the, uh, the Lynx before as well, which yeah, it was actually, it kind of reminded me a bit like a, like a handheld Amiga. It was like a really powerful little system. I know a lot of the, uh, the Amiga team actually did work on the, the Lynx too. And I always think, you know, at the time you've got to think, 
how advanced it was over something like the Game Boy, which I think a lot of people forget. Yeah, it always, whenever I saw, like, remember when the Game Boy um, came out with the Game Boy SP, which was like a backlit, full-color display? It was like, it took a decade to finally catch up to where the Lynx was, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, I love the Lynx, and, the, um, and at the, when I first started there, I was assigned to actually uh, sort of track down and produce these titles that had been started by a Chicago office that Atari had that had been closed down. So my first job was actually inheriting and sort of trying to finish a number of these um, Lynx games, uh, things like Ride N, Ninja Gaiden 3, and actually um, the actual original first version of Alien vs. Predator was on the Lynx, which um, where you play, a, it was a two-sided game where you play could play as a Marine or a Predator, and it kind of sort of third-person perspective, sort of tracking down through hallways, but the basic idea of having, you know, two sides to pit against each other was where it started. And that actually was the basis of the design for the Jaguar team. Um, the original AVP Lynx was being developed by Images, headed by Carl Jeffries um, in the UK, where you guys are. <laughs> but it never actually got to completion um, as a number of those titles in the Lynx catalog didn't quite make the finish line. But we all agreed that the design was strong enough and we had this sort of level of license with um, through Activision. In fact, you know the original the original design for Alien versus Predator was just to be a direct port of the arcade version, which I think you can get on the Super Nintendo, where you're it's kind of like a final fight game where you're playing a predator punching out aliens as you go. You know, it's fun to play in the arcade, but we always felt that hey, this is a new console. We'd all been playing things like Wolfenstein and Doom, and we really wanted to. You know that was a, you know gave us the opportunity to give them a reason to put a new design in as the original design had all these elements from Dark Horse Comics that we didn't have the license for, and so that was my what I called the wedge from, from our legal team to see hey are you, uh, we have a new reason to put in a new design which was the first person three sided game that we came up with. Well, Atari was kind of like a family company then with the Tremios running it. Um, did you have any interaction with them and work with them at all? I yes, I worked and reported directly to Sam Trammell for most of my time there. Um, you know, the, I, I, I look back now, and even at the time, I recognized that it was a special place. Atari really has, you know, the unique. Fan, it did feel like a family. They did look out for each other. Um, they sort of bickered amongst each other sometimes as a family, which is kind of funny to see sometimes, right? <laughs> you know, it's like you can tell that you know. Um, that the you know Leonard Trammell, the who was tech, you know the sort of a technical leader at, at Atari, and Sam Trammell, you know they you could tell they were brothers, right? I, you know they interacted in the same way that me and my brother may have interacted a little bit, you know, and that kind of thing sort of made it, you know, really interesting. Um, and it kind of, I would say there was a certain level of chaos, but the same chaos that made it kind of, you know, challenging at times was the same chaos that made it really the opportunity at that time to sort of, you know, take things and run with it. Um, and that was what Sam Trammell let me do when I really pressed to sort of um, put, you know, the, put some really focused effort on making Alien versus Predator the, the best it can be. He really got behind that note. He understood the value of, um, you know, wasn't it wasn't enough to have the title just come out and be a C grade title. It really needed to shine. And if it needed extra time, if it needed extra money, and if it needed, you know, extra cart space, he was he was ready to make that happen. So I, I always. Um, very thankful that he was ready to learn and be open to, you know, what's good for the game, what is good for this company. And that really, um, you know, rang true. 
And that obviously paid off. I mean, you know, even today, I think that game, Alien versus Predator, is generally regarded by most people as the Jaguars' finest title. I mean, you've, you've kind of touched on some of the background on it, but what's kind of the, the process of that game and in the development? I mean, did, how did it kind of progress? And was it always intended to be an FPS game? And what was kind of the, the, the process of developing that game? Did it take a long time? Um, I worked on Alien vs. Predator for 23 months mm. as a total. <laughs> um, the Jaguar development probably took 18 of those. My first initial run, as I said, was picking up the, the Lynx title version of it and then sort of digging into what we could do with it as we recognized it that, yes, um, it was going to be a lead title for the Jaguar, but at the time, no one was quite sure what that meant. Um, when the they, Atari had the developers conference, um, I first was introduced to the team at Rebellion, and they seemed to have a really strong um, art, artistic sense of like what could you know really make it sort of stand out. And they were the ones who you know pitched the idea of actually using doing the technique of using model parts to create the background and texture layers, and use it for the animations um, that I would be sort of photorealistic, which at the time again was sort of unseen in other in other titles, and really sort of helped you know, raise the bar for, you know, what we could expect out of the Jaguars as a machine. Um, the process was, there's a lot of back and forth, let's just say. <laughs> Again, we had sub-licensed it from Activision. So I worked with Tom Sloper, who was really helpful in getting me in front of the people at 20th Century Fox. And to, you know, to my surprise, they were actually open to the idea. They wanted to see what we wanted to do with the characters. And they ultimately said, yes, make it, you know, if you guys think, this three-sided game as a first-person perspective, we're willing to shift the license as long as it says Alien versus Predator on it, and you guys are true to the characters. You know, we'll we'll let this new design to to proceed. And and as I um at the start when we were talking, uh, you know, we at Atari, there's a lot of people who are diehard fans, myself included, <laughs> and we ended up doing a series of movie nights over um Ted Takeshi's house, one of the other producers at Atari. And where we all as fans sort of got together and watched all the Alien and Predator movies and we'd sort of write down all our ideas and as a, you know, the collaborative brainstorming process where you sort of go wide, if you will, about what's our dream or wish list of what, what we want to include. And that's how we revised the design proposal that was submitted to Activision and 20th Century Fox and then handed on to um, the folks at Rebellion who were able to, um, you know, start building the Jaguar version of it. Well, I, f I think there were some really good design features in there that were kind of based on atmosphere. And if you look at the Alien films as well, they're very atmospheric, and especially Alien vs. Predator. Um, the early Alien games, like Alien 3, they were all side-scrolling kind of uh, right. platformers. How, how did you change this and reflect that atmosphere with a limited draw distance and uh, <laughs> uh, frame well, rate as well? <laughs> Well, in frame rate and cartridge space, I mean, honestly, um, one of the aspects of Alien vs. Predator that I'm not sure everyone, like, to me, I always like to say the third dimension in games is sound. You know, not that things are 3D rendered, but the actual completion of it. And the audio t of Alien vs. Predator uh, was led up by the um, internal audio lead, James Grunke, who helped, you know, working with the other um, folks like M. Stevens and... Um, and Wiley, they all put together, they really understood what we were aiming for, which was a horror-based game that could take use of the, you know, we don't have a whole, we don't have a CD-ROM to expand on to add, like, dialogue, you know, full-on dialogue, but we, what we did have was enough to um, sort of set the stage and really get that atmospheric sense that you're in this deserted 
you know, space station and how important that, like, if we are only going to have voice samples, we're going to make those be really important aspects of it. Um, and then I would say six weeks out before we were finished, um, you know, about to reach the final beta stage, um, we were having an issue with trying to get all the animation into the, the two megabyte cartridge. And again, this is a, a moment where stamp, you know, Sam Trammell's, you know, he got behind what we were saying to him and gave us and uh, let us expand it to a, you know, basically double the cartridge size. And we spent virtually all of it on the audio, um, which allowed us to have the full, you know, narrator voice um, of this computer, which was Richard Miller, who was one of the core architects of the Jaguar design. His wife, uh, Sandra, she also worked in there uh, at the office and had this great, um, you know, voice that we heard, we're like, wow, she should be the computer. Yes. <laughs> you know, come on over, <laughs> please record these lines. You know, <laughs> And again, that was like the spirit of the thing. Everyone wanted to sort of help and sort of collaborate onto it. So we, um, you know, let uh, James Grunke and his audio team sort of take it and run as far as like, you know, putting as much audio as we could to, in which to me sealed the deal. It's really sort of, you know, when the, we got that expanded audio stuff, working it was like it really sort of brought it all together and made it into the kind of game that we you know we we fell in love with as we're making so a more really innovative thing about that game is you could actually choose whether you wanted to play as the marine or the alien um did you have a preference when you were playing the game i mean the 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 complete experience is the uh colonial marine that has probably the most story but my personal favorite is the alien playing as an alien just because of the mechanic of you're constantly spawning you know you have to always be reaching out you know infect another marine and use that as your sort of advance point or your save game point to kind of fall back to if you get killed and it really sort of added another dimension to explore this idea that you know who's you know to an alien it's those colonial marines who are the enemy right yeah. <laughs> if you're the predator you know who's to say which side is the the good guys if you will right and as a you know, I've always loved horror movies. I've always loved sort of like mixing it up. I, I like the idea of a multi-sided conflict and which is why I'm really glad that, you know, again, um, Sam Trammell was able to give us extra time to finish. Uh, the title was meant to be a spring of, I think it was supposed to meant to be released in spring of 94. And the original budget had been spent to get the game to like, I'd say a demo state where, um, you know, the maze was randomly generated you could only play as a mar as the marine and at the time i know um you know the folks at rebellion were itchy to sort of like just ship it as it were because they were had to move on to other projects and as i said the development budget got spent but after really discussing it with sam and realized you know he understood that the press at the time and the potential for what this title could be and what we could make out of it if we um you know if we brought the main programmers over to the Atari offices and work on site in Sunnyvale to get the game finished during the summer and really get it ready for a Christmas release that um, that window gave us everything we needed to actually get all, you know, the original design we'd hoped for, which is all three sides and sort of playing it that, you know, playing this really just a different way of doing things, you know, and without that kind of extra um, bit of runway, you know, the game would have been a single player you know, one-sided experience and not not quite what we were hoping for. I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to finish it the way we wanted to. Well, Alien Isolation is a new kind of VR title where you, you're hiding away from the aliens and you've got to move around them on the ship. Um, I remember they had a Jaguar VR system at one time. Did you ever try it? And were there any plans to do original AVP in that? Um, 
it had been discussed. I never actually tried the prototype hardware, and I had um, I had left Atari by the time they were ready to start showing it. Um, I had been I had seen quite a few of other VR setups at the time, like from a, a few years before. I had worked at um, when I was at Lucasfilm. They pr- participated in something called Cyberthon, which was one of the uh, held at the Colossal Studios in San Francisco, where it was like the most early basic prototype versions like you know that they used like a nintendo glove that they've been put on this giant helmet thing that you had to like have a couple people hold on to while you had your head in in it it was like really primitive at the time but um you know i know that that's where they you know because the game boy advance had the the 3d sort of module version of it that there was some talk to to get it there but um my focus wasn't on the the jaguar vr as far as the cd you know, what we wanted to do for the expanded versions of Alien versus Predator, we did do sort of an end of postmortem meeting of here's our wish list of things that didn't quite make it, which turned into a about a five page document that we submitted to 20th Century Fox for, you know, what we would do with the title with, the, you know, if we could move it on to CD-ROM. And that was in turn became the um, the the Alien versus Predator game that came out from Rebellion like about four or five years later. So. <laughs> Were there any plans to release that on the Jaguar CD thing? Because that had a CD add-on, didn't it? Um, it was, but again, at the time, the negotiation for um, actually getting that title made was, wasn't in place. So the paperwork, you know, the actual legal agreements to actually get that, um, the CD version established didn't get set up. And I left, um, I left the Atari about six months after the Jag, the original Alien vs. Predator on the Jaguar had come out. So I, while I handed all the design materials and what we had learned from the original one, you know, its movement into the CD side of it didn't, you know, I wasn't part of. Did you see any kind of unreleased games or anything that they had in the works that didn't reach the light of day? Yeah, I mean, um, the internal projects that were started at the beginning, there was a notion that and again, sort of an old-fashioned way of thinking that we'll the we had four lead programmers in in the group, and I believe you know the there was a thought amongst the Atari hardware team that oh that means we can get four new games out of them in four to six months, which perhaps that might have been true in the Atari 2600 era, but isn't wasn't definitely true in the um, you know in 1990 or 93 when it was being built or 94, so there were quite a few titles we had a couple of titles like about half a few months into that process we all agreed that we should consolidate pick two of the you know focus on two games and started trying to make four so the two that got sort of scrapped was one was a side scrolling title that was uh we we're you know our rough name was a space pirate which was again sort of a just a, a more of a final fight shooter shooter type metroid game where you're in a spaceship sort of shooting through things that um that team got sort of moved into what would um, into another title and uh, another programmer John Wentworth had this really sort of like really forward thinking and probably ahead of its time game where you used sort of hand motions and hand gestures of Sanskrit letters to sort of interact with the sort of underwater exploration game wow. and it you know really I, I would love to see that in kind of using the modern VR tech tools again sort of ahead of its time we couldn't really render the world that he saw but it was really a it was really an inspiring game it's kind of reminiscent of what I'd see in things like Journey or Flower that really sort of unfolding not quite what you expect as a game but is a game you know 
um, it was really great to see that kind of innovative thinking at, at, at play. And I always regret like that, not seeing the finish line, but I don't think the hardware at the time would have ever done it justice. But, you know, John Wentworth, if you're listening, get your idea made, man. <laughs> we want to play it. <laughs> but what did you think of like, you know, third party Jaguar titles that you were seeing released around that time? So Bill Raybach headed up a lot of the third party groups. And so, you know, we were thrilled to death when, um, he secured the deal with and worked with uh, id software to get doom made so for us you know even though we were making a what might be seen as a comp- competitor to doom because we're both first person shooters you know the avp team enjoyed seeing the builds of of doom because of course that's something we'd play on our free time too so <laughs> and it was a great um, pull wasn't it on the jack it really was i mean you know that they did a really i thought excellent job and you know in in while there were a number of people in the computer world who had been exposed to, you know, the early Wolfenstein and and Doom, it was nice to actually bring it into a home console because, you know, the the bar between a home computer and a console was still, you know, could be a, easily a thousand dollars or more, and so it was nice to kind of think that, oh wait, we can bring this into people's living rooms and not just the home computer and give them give them a ride that they can't they won't forget, you know. <laughs> Well, one thing that kind of overshadows the the Jag today in many ways is, uh, you know, that whole was it really 64-bit argument. Where where do you stand on that? You know, even at the time, I I felt it was kind of – I didn't really understand this kind of, you know, I don't know what you want to describe it um, as a stat race or something. You know, this has better stats than that. I never saw things that way. I always saw things like you're not going to be playing the stats of this – hardware you're going to be playing the games are, are there better games for it like you know to me it all i sort of like fundamentally it matters not what we're playing it on but what we're making instead and for me what was is that the you know the jaguar the jaguar titles did have um offer things that weren't available in the home world like you know the a fully 3d environment even in the the packing game like cybermorph was you know while it wasn't perhaps fully texture map did offer a full truly 3d and experience with you know fully rendered you know ships and and enemies and again you know and putting that into a home console even in its most primitive state was still groundbreaking at the time you know you just didn't have that option and for most titles or you know as a home consumer so when i saw you know the um you know the do the math commercials and it wasn't, you know, I always like, wait, why are you focusing on these details? I, I, I know it sounds good, right? Bigger, better, more, right? <laughs> but really when it boils down to it is it doesn't really matter how much of stats you have if the games aren't any good. And so really it needs to come back to are we offering experiences that you can't get elsewhere? And to me the answer was yes. You know, um, titles like you know, Alien vs. Predator. Uh, um, I was always a huge fan of um, Iron Soldier, the 3D um, sort of mech warrior game that was led by another producer, Sean Patton. You know, Sean Patton was who you see as the his photograph is the photo of the Marine you see in the left hand upper left hand corner of the Marine game in Alien vs Predator. He was one of our diehard fans who actually had made up a full on Colonial Marine weapon set and armor set that we were using to sort of base the um, you know the photorealistic textures on, and you know he really had a good sense for what would make for a great mech game and that became iron soldier and really did you know you're walking around the city and you're able to take down a building in full 3d it's like yeah we brought that home and you know if it's 64 bits or what have you it's like that the gameplay is really what mattered there and kind of 
offering people something that they've never you know been able to do at home before. Do you uh, still own a Jag at all? And have you kept up with any of the recent developments, like uh, the Pro controllers that guys are releasing and stuff? I haven't. Uh, I don't have a. I haven't picked up a Pro controller, but I do have the original Jaguar. In fact, I have the original um, sort of pre-prototype, pre-release hardware, and the original breadboard that has the final approved version of Alien vs. Predator on. Oh wow. <laughs> um, on it so <laughs> i've been dusting that off and i think since it's the 25th anniversary of the jaguar i'm thinking of um you know ebaying it perhaps as a <laughs> a pack with all the original level maps and all the um you know the, a crew t-shirt some of the materials that um, we all had at the time that just sort of put it together as sort of a care package and just you know put it out there in the world if a uh, collector of if the collector community wants to you know t- you know have at it then i'm, I'm ready to um you know, send it out into the world and see where it goes. <laughs> You'll have to send me that link as soon as it goes up. <laughs> no, I absolutely will. <laughs> I mean, that, personally speaking, I, I'm a fan of the Jaguar. I've talked about it on the podcast before. You know, it's actually the only system I really collect for. Um, and I'm not far away from a complete collection for it now. And I think, you know, I, I often felt that, especially the stuff people are doing, like the homebrew community now, um, it was actually capable hardware, but I feel maybe like a lot of developers didn't utilize it to its full capabilities for whatever reason. Um, do, do you think that that's true? And do, do you think it, it doesn't really deserve this kind of bad reputation that it seems to have today? I, I mean, the bad reputation might have stemmed from, and this again, like what I had mentioned before, it didn't, it doesn't have, the Jaguar never came with a giant tool set for developers to start from. So everything had to be developed from scratch you know and when you think about how modern games are developed now and that there's full-on you know there's the unreal engine there's the unity tool set you know all this middleware that people have that um that takes a huge amount of uh developer cycles that you know all that means that the developers don't have to build that from the start um i i think you know, it can't be underplayed for, I think, a game that made it to the finish line for, on the Jaguar was cutting edge and, and really was, you know, as because it got finished, right? They weren't, it wasn't an easy system to to, um, to build, build for because it didn't come with a complete library of developer tools that people have, you know, that was part of like the, um, the modern PlayStation development kit, for example. So... Any developer that sort of signed up to make one, they were kind of taking on the extra challenge of having to like, you know, literally work with the hardware and develop everything from scratch themselves. Um, I oversaw the group at Lore Design when they were making the um, Highlander, the animated series CD-ROM game. And, you know, we, um, uh, that was one of the first motion capture games on a console. And that team had to actually work out how to actually process and manage all the data that you get from the motion capture sessions and put it into a format that could be scalable to a to the Jaguar and the home console part, which, you know, motion capture is a great way to get that fluid motion, but it actually gives you like way too much information, if you will. So it was like the simplification process on the exact correct joints you know, that the team worked out that could actually then have it render it out with the limited rendering capabilities of the hardware at the time. I guess that's one thing like the fans have kind of picked up on, you know, over the last like 20 odd years, you know, they've kind of figured out how to use the hardware now to its full capability. That's why I guess you're seeing good homebrew stuff today. Yeah. And I always, I think it's amazing that, um, that the community has sort of risen up and, and found a path to, to do things with. And, you know, it's, it's, I, if, uh, 
I, I think if we'd had that approach at the beginning, it would be of interest in to, to, to see what would have happened then if we had opened it up to um, to more people. But again, that kind of, you know, this is, I hate to, you know, this is almost pre-internet, right? So <laughs> when this was being made, like while there was some email and web browsers, it still was 1993 and four. Uh, I actually, um, you know, there wasn't an internal like say network at Atari, people did things what I call the sneaker net, right? We put it on a floppy and carried it over to the, <laughs> the desks of the person they were trying to get it to, right? So it was kind of um, you know, now now I sound old, right? I remember when we had to walk our data down. This was all for old. <laughs> well, what are you up to nowadays, and what have you kind of been doing since Atari? Well, uh, after Atari, I worked at um, another a number of console companies. Uh, you know, um, I went to Rocket Science Games to create uh, this game, Pest, which I was able to um, secure the rights to after it, it left. So I might be the last game I ever make, but I'll make be making it someday. Right? <laughs> um, we had, uh, but I then moved on to working with uh, Cyclone Studios. Actually, saw in the developers um, uh, at Lore had sort of created a sort of a spin-off group that we put together using a Net Eurozy box that we pitched to Sony in London. In '97, um, I don't know if you remember that, but that was the sort of $500 Black sort of developer friendly. One. Yep, yeah, for PlayStation One. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Which again, it's like people seem to forget that at the time, those development kits would cost anywhere from like thirty to fifty thousand dollars just yeah. to get a single developer kit. And so the Net Eurozy really was a, an approach that was um, I thought it was fantastic. Right for the cost of effectively about five or six hundred dollars, you got almost a development, a full development kit, which was one step away from being a full-on dev board, but enough to actually, you know, put a game together. And we actually, you know, put um, a playable um, game that we pitched to Sony in London and, um, you know, and, and that side worked out. Unfortunately, the team, you know, the wheels of game development takes, you know, move slowly. And so that developer ended up taking a contract job and I returned back to the United States to work at, um, Cyclone Studios, which then got bought by 3DO. So I helped design the Army Men Air Attack game, where it was kind of you play a sort of a helicopter game. But yeah. Like I really wanted to push the toy aspect and sort of pursue that sort of cartoon sensibility. I worked at Shockwave.com, so that was one of the I would say the transitional period between like 56k modems and uh, <laughs> standard high-speed internet. <laughs> You know, the, the, I remember starting and the bar was, the game has to be 500K or less, which was like kind of, um, you know, it was kind of an unspoken rule. But even while those that period was going on, we've noted, you know, the way people were reaching the access to the Internet, you know, changed. You know, the days of the 56K modem dial-up was, was transitioning over to more standard cable modems. And so we were able to sort of expand into a new, new style of game. In recent times, I um, have been, you know, I, I've sort of moved towards an educational bent for a while. My uh, sister had my niece and nephew, and I really kind of thought, hey, let's, you know, maybe do more, you know, maybe make a fun game that you can also learn your math tables on or something, right? <laughs> like, and we don't, we, you know, my core was it didn't need to, the games were still needed to be games that were fun to play. So, you know, we, you couldn't treat it like the the curriculum part shouldn't be broccoli, right? <laughs> like it should still be a fast-paced fun playing game but you're still has a an, you know an educational component so i was really glad to be able to integrate you know that aspect of things you know and all the while i <laughs> sort of typing up my notes about 
you know, what it was like to work at Lucasfilm and Atari during the days in hopes of, you know, one day I'll get to, you know, get it together and finish for him and put, try to put it out as a book, perhaps. Oh, that'd be incredible. I mean, James, you know, even, even in the last hour, I feel like we've covered so much and I think we could easily do like another two or three hours with you. So it'd be, uh, <laughs> it would be amazing to read those stories in a book. So uh, we appreciate you coming on this week and sharing your story, James. It's been wonderful talking to you. Oh, I appreciate you guys calling. It's always good to see. And, I, I, you know, it's great that, you know, the Jaguar has such good fans even after all these times, right? It's, um, you know, it's kind of an odd time in video gaming, but, it, you know, it was also, um, you know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, right? <laughs> like, the chaos that made it bad also made it awesome. And I was really glad to be able to work with and collaborate with the people I was able to build these games with. And it's great that people remember them after, after all these years. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.